I think that might have been a first time for me as well. That's a really lovely hymn. I wonder why we haven't sung that before. Thank you, Marvin. I worked on this sermon a couple of weeks ago, just before I left for my annual Spirit Lake retreat, spiritual retreat in the mountains of Colorado with uh, friends with whom I graduated from seminary who are now living all over and doing all kinds of ministry in various forms. It was our 14th annual gathering and uh, is a deeply sustaining rhythm in my life of faith and also in the health of my ministry. And then from there to time with John's family in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, um, which included spending time with the three beloved littles um, who live regularly in Germany but are in the States for a number of weeks this summer, Emmanuel, Liana, and Nathaniel, who are a truckload and a half of energy. And it was a different sort of sustaining to have time for play uh, with my nephews and my niece. And I spent most of that Thursday a few weeks back focusing in on manna as both question and answer. We think of manna as something that you could be that you could put in a noun blank in a Mad Lib. It's a thing. It's bread. Manna is its name, bread that rained down daily from heaven for the exiled Israelites who had just been liberated from slavery in Egypt. But manna has only come to mean the name of that bread through the telling of the story that we heard this morning. Manna is actually the question that they ask. What is it? That's manna. Literally, what is it? And it's become the answer to its own question, so that you ask, manna? Manna. I spent most of that Thursday, a few weeks back, pondering the drawing near and how it is in the drawing near enough to ask a question, manna, that we find ourselves close enough to encounter the answer, manna. So that drawing near, man, you get close enough. You can think of this even in terms of food. I can do this with John in the kitchen. What is it? And as I draw close enough to ask the question, I begin to encounter the answer to my own question. And then thinking about this even more sort of metaphorically, we know this in our own lives, not just um, even just this morning looking through, oh, I have it down there, the communicator announcements, since I'm a little more out of the loop, I was reading the communicator announcements. Usually I know what they are before it goes to print. So I was reading through them, and I was thinking about how if you draw close enough, draw near enough to ask and wonder about the experience of immigrants and refugees in our city, you may find yourself close enough then to encounter some of the answer, to encounter people, to encounter their stories. So World Relief is sponsoring a solidarity training you can see in the communicator. And if you draw close enough to wonder and ask the question, you may find yourself close enough to actually encounter the response to your own question. So I spent that time 
on Thursday a few weeks back pondering that drawing near and how that fits with Jesus' reflections on bread of life. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Jesus is the sort of bread that sustains. And Jesus beckons us to draw near enough to him to both ask the question who he is and to find ourselves close enough to begin to encounter the answer, to both name our hunger and then somehow in that naming find that we are filled I did all that reflecting and writing, but it just wasn't coming together as I wished, and so I decided to see what Jan Richardson had written about manna and or Jesus as the bread of life, because Jan, in my experience, always has something beautifully true to say, and she didn't disappoint in this either. And so I scrapped my terrible first draft, five pages. Um, Anyone know Anne Lamott out there? I'm sure many of you do. She talks a lot about, and here I'm going to soften her language a little bit, um, (laughs) crappy first drafts and the importance of crappy first drafts. Uh, It's an important part of the process of getting to where you are. Well, I didn't have time to refine my crappy first draft, so I just ditched it and instead wrote this one-page sort of summary of what I was thinking of, and I actually think it's better than the five pages that I scrapped. Anyway, so I looked at Jan's reflections, and I ended up just copy and pasting her reflection on the gastronomical Jesus from 2009. And I was thinking about sustenance, not just because of the obvious thematic ties with manna and the bread of life, but also because I was preparing to depart for people and places and spaciousness of time that contribute to my own sustenance. My own sustenance as a person of faith, my own sustenance just as a human in this world, my own sustenance as a minister working in a church setting. And Jan's words felt more sustaining to me than my own did that Thursday a couple of weeks back. So I pray that they will be sustaining for you as well. So with no further ado, hear these words from the incomparable Jan Richardson. Following up on last week's reading, the gospel lection for this Sunday offers us another image of provision and plentitude that come through Christ. Last week we saw him turn a couple of fish and buy loaves of bread into a feast for the masses. And this week he talks about his own being as bread, Bread of God, bread of heaven, bread of life. In the wake of last week's stunning feeding, John tells us that the crowd dogs Jesus' trail with the air of people looking for seconds. When they catch up with him, Jesus tells them that they're looking for him not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, he cautions them, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the human one will give to you. Jesus is clear in calling them to discern the difference between what fills the belly and what fills the soul. At the same time, 
He well understands the ways that the hungers of the body and the hungers of the soul intertwine and how both are at play when it comes to food. Now, I didn't know as I was reading this a couple weeks, well, I could have guessed. This is me inserting myself. Um, The way that those hungers of body and soul intertwine is so very real to me, and I think to many of us. And I just reflect back now on these last two weeks of sustaining time and places and spaciousness away. Um, And I think of these lingering, long times at the table with my Spirit Lake sisters. Um, We were both there for the corn on the cob and the fresh watermelon, the fruits of this abundant season, but also for the soul-nourishing conversation that happened around the table and the sharing of that food with one another, the deep sharing that we return to each year with one another as we accompany one another through um, changes in vocation or a, a sense of a new or emerging calling um, as we accompany one another through divorce, through um, cancer, through um, the birth of a blessed, beloved, beautiful new baby, uh, through the many things of life. So we gather around the table for the corn on the cob and the watermelon and the soul-nourishing conversation. They are just inexplicably intertwined. Um, You could do one without the other, and it wouldn't be as fulfilling. So back to Jan. This is, after all, I'm just talking about Jesus here, the man who so loved to share a meal with all sorts of companions that his critics called him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. When he wants to convey the essence of who he really is, In word and in action, it is to food, to the gifts of the earth that Jesus turns. Wheat, bread, wine. In his hands, food is more than food. It is an enduring symbol of and gift from the one who offers his very being to meet our deepest hunger and our keenest thirst. So it is more than food, yet it is food nonetheless. The famed food writer M.F.K. Fisher, and I knew when I got to this point in reading that I was going to share with you Jan's words because I love a good food essay. Um, M.F.K. Fisher offers a passage that captures the way that hungers of body and soul and the feeding of them are bound together. So in the introduction to her book, The Gastronomical Me, first published in 1943, she writes... People ask me, why do you write about food and eating and drinking? Why don't you write about the struggle for power and security and about love the way that other people do? They ask it accusingly, as if I were somehow gross, unfaithful to the honor of my craft. The easiest answer is to say that, like most other humans, I am hungry. But there is more than that. It seems to me that our three basic needs for food and security and love are so mixed and mingled and entwined that we cannot straightly think of one without the other. So it happens that when I write of hunger, I am really writing about love and the hunger for it and the warmth and love of it and the hunger for it. 
And then the warmth and richness and fine reality of hunger satisfied, and it is all one. I tell about myself and how I ate bread on a lasting hillside or drank red wine in a room now blown to bits. And it happens without my willing it that I am telling, too, about the people with me then and their other deeper needs of love and happiness. There is food in the bowl, and more often than not, because of what honestly I have, there is nourishment in the heart to feed the wilder, more insistent hungers. We must eat. If, in the face of that dread fact, we can find other nourishment and tolerance and compassion for it, we'll be no less full of human dignity. There is a communion of more than our bodies when bread is broken and wine drunk. And that is my answer when people ask me, why do you write about hunger and not about wars or love? And then Jan picks up again, says, I find myself thinking too of Simone Weil, who wrote in her book, Waiting for God, the danger is not lest the soul should doubt whether there is any bread, but lest by a lie it should persuade itself that it is not hungry. It's dense enough and good enough that it's worth hearing again. The danger is not lest the soul should doubt whether there is any bread, but lest by a lie it should persuade itself that it is not hungry. What are you hungry for these days? What does your relationship with food have to say about your relationship with God? Or vice versa? Are there meals that hold memories of connection and communion? I sort of want to ask here, are there meals that don't? (laughs) Do you have habits of eating or not eating that reveal a soul hunger that needs God's healing. And I would add here, too, thinking about the Exodus text, what is the nature of the wilderness in which you wander? And what is the food you long for? And what provision does God provide in the midst of that wilderness? So, friends, may the bread of life, who knew the pleasures of the table, feed you well in these days. Blessings, and may it be so.